With a robust economy and low inflation, markets and economics are in a complicated era. WealthVest presents the Weekly Bull and Bear, a podcast dedicated to bringing financial professionals the most up-to-date weekly analysis of the trends and developments occurring in capital markets both here and around the world. Listen in as we analyze these developments and shine a light on the events that matter to us. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you had a great 4th of July break. Uh, Tim's back, and we're about to start off our third episode. I'd like to kind of create a little bit color in the beginning with the June jobs report. Uh, as we know, the U.S. economy added 224,000 jobs in June on a seasonally adjusted basis. Uh, this was released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This was quite a bit more than analysts had been expecting, uh, which was an increase of 162,000. Um, so, you know, quite a bit stronger in that regard. Uh, we've recently had some movement in terms of second quarter earnings. Uh, that's kicking off into full gear this week. Uh, right now, I think we've had about 5% of the major uh, S&P 500 companies um, a little over half of them have mentioned a strong dollar um, kind of hurting their bottom line. But, uh, Tim, maybe you give us some color on, you know, the jobs report, earnings, and just a lot of the big cyclical developments we've been having. Yeah. I mean, look, on uh, I'll start backwards. On earnings, you know, we'll really kind of get started this week and next. J.P. Morgan, a bunch of big tech names will, will be next week. I think the street – uh, bottoms up estimate is for earnings to be down a few percent. You know, a lot of that is going to be currency. More than 40% of S&P earnings is is in foreign currencies, and the dollar has been strong. Uh, we'll get into competitive devaluation and all the jawboning from the Fed uh, as we go on here. But yeah, the dollar is is stronger than U.S. corporates would want it to be, and that's why you know, good old Larry Kudlow used to be Mr. King Dollar. I uh, can't say enough about how the Fed needs to be more active to weaken our currency. Um, you know, on non-farm payrolls, I hate the non-farm payrolls print. It always just surprises me that with all the economic data that's out there, the one that everybody loses their mind over is the NFPs. You know, the ADP, people look at the ADP as if it's just if its only job is to tell you what the NFP is going to be. might be a better data set. The household survey is another data set. And then you've got to look at the four-week moving average on non-farm farm payrolls, and, you know, it's very, very clear that uh, things are slowing. If you look at the details within the non-farm payrolls, uh, you had uh, temporary workers, which is a leading indicator, uh, was more negative. Uh, you had the bulk of new jobs came from second jobs and part-time jobs. So, um, I'm not particularly impressed by non-farm payrolls. You know, this is a number that the Bureau of Labor Statistics could revise by 100,000 jobs next year. Uh, you know, the birth-death model makes up 100,000 change, and who knows whether that's right or wrong. It's a guess. So anyway, I think the trend is that we've got a slower economy. I think anything and everything has told you that, whether it's in the U.S. or it's in China, just printing a weaker GDP and that GDP going lower. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it's going to be 50 or 25 basis points uh, later this month, but, you know, I, I keep saying the same thing, and that is what difference does it make? Um, the market disagrees with me. The equity markets disagree with me, uh, and there's a belief that somehow we're going to re-stimulate it. I, 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 don't, I don't quite see it. Um, we've priced in these lower interest rates. You look at where the 10-year is. Has it really stimulated housing? And I don't want to get ahead of our 
our discussion points here, but it really hasn't. So I continue to be surprised. I'm a simple person. I think that er that the S&P usually is going to be driven by the direction of earnings growth. Uh, And the earnings of direction growth is down. The direction of the economy is down. But like I say, pretty much every time we do this podcast or do this discussion, man, the faith in global central banks has never been higher. And it is high. Uh, And that's what you see. You know, I mean, every economist is sitting there parsing every word from the central banks because that's what market participants want to hear them talking about. Uh, and everybody's staring at the Bloomberg seeing when we're going to price in 50 bips. Uh, so anyway, I've gone on too long on that ramble. But, yeah, I, I, I think the very simple message is we are slowing, uh, and the Fed is going to do what they can. But I'm on the side. If I'm dead wrong about something in a year from now, it'll be that I don't think the Fed and the central banks globally are going to be very effective here in this slowdown, in this global industrial production slowdown. I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that on that point, Drew. Yeah, I mean, what it seems to me is that so much of this is just news-driven as opposed to fundamentals. I mean, J.P. Morgan just raised its stock market forecasts. Um, you know, but at the same time, the Atlanta Fed, you know, showed a significant slowdown in GDP. Uh, a little 3.2, you know, first quarter. This one appeared to be, you know, about one and a half. So I think a lot of what we're seeing is just, you know, news and reactive um, buying, and I, I don't know what your thoughts might be on that. You know, in the short term, the the market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine, and the short term is basically impossible to predict. Uh, as somebody who's been in short-term trading operations and hedge funds and prop desks, there ain't a whole lot of people who can do it well. So the short term is, is really very, very hard to understand. A lot of it comes down to um, positioning, The hedge funds have sure as hell lagged in a real way. And as the market gets into this kind of grind up later and you've been setting up to be short or you've been set up to be underweight and the market keeps grinding in your grill, you don't have a whole lot of choice but to chase. And I think we're in that chase mode right now. Uh, And until there is a more significant negative catalyst, um, uh, you know, we, we could just keep grinding higher. I'll say this. We're about to go into the deepest part of the blackout period you know we'll buy something north of six or seven hundred billion dollars of stock this year um that is that that keeps some earnings growth uh you know lying underneath this market but i don't think uh but but you know if we do get a weaker earnings season than people expect uh you might get some volatility because you don't have that underlying bid sitting there I guess one interesting thing is that I mean I'm a sucker for historical, you know, comparisons, but you know, we look at this month and it's marked the 121st month of economic expansion um since the great financial crisis. So, uh this is the longest run we have on record actually going back to 1854. And while it's the longest, it's kind of been one of the slower ones as well. I'm wondering if there's any, you know, what recoveries we might find some parallels with, you know, whether it be 61 or post-war or going into the 1990s. Uh, how does this look similar to those? How does it look different? Um, you know, what what is this yeah. expansion, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as we look at the end of an expansion, the opposite, the end of an expansion is a recession. 
And the recession that we all have most recently on our minds was obviously 08. I don't really have any reason to believe that we're going to see anything that looks like 08 or 09. You don't have this massive asset bubble that we all, the, the banks and the general public, we all participated in and we all got uh, too deep in. Almost everybody got hurt in that one. Uh, but, you know, if you look at kind of the 01, 02 period, uh, where you really had free money for a long time, um, you know, that had been a long expansion. Expansions keep getting longer. Uh, I think as you just get into a more developed, slower growth world uh, that is so reliant on central banks, and central banks have never been more active, QE, et cetera, I think that just – and then just the innovation that we've had, both globalization, um, all of these things that have really weighed on inflation, uh, it has continued to incrementally uh, make these expansions longer. Anything, you know, sort of gold standard period going way back is kind of irrelevant now because it's just a different world in the way we can competitively devalue. Now, at some point it's going to end, um, but I, I don't know that there's a great – uh, historical precedent uh, for this one. I, I would probably say kind of that that 01 cycle, um, but you know that was a pretty mild recession, and then and then you know you you took off for a long time after that because the Fed was so active and made money so free. Uh, at some point, it should beget malinvestment, um, and I'm, I'm not sure outside of China where I do think you'll end up seeing real tangible malinvestment. I don't know that you're really there. Uh, at this point, I've made the point that I think we're getting late in the credit cycle for the consumer. I think you do see that in the lack of follow-through in housing. I think you do see that in the weakness in durable goods and autos. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I don't think you're going to see anything like that 08 precedent. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, Mark Twain, you know, said – History doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Um, I think one of these are one of the things in my mind where, you know, during the Great Depression, we had a lot less tools in our toolbox, you know, and there's a lot less things, you know, coordinated between major central banks. So I think between how different economies pursued the stimulus and, um, you know, the role of the Fed and all of that, I think it's been a quite different recovery in this one than, than some of the other ones I might have rattled off, whether that be uh, yeah, 61 or yeah. whether that be post-World War II. So, so I would agree that there's just – the recovery is quite a lot different because how we've responded to the, the crash was, you know, the, 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 the world was a different place. The fundamentals were a different place, and we had quite a bit more globalization than we did in some of our previous uh, recessions. You, you brought up housing you know, was, and – oh. Sorry, Drew. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, and and I think that that might just be a good segue. And and feel free to finish your thought. But um, housing, you know, the supply soon looks like it's expected to drop. Uh, I mean, we look at the number of listings. Um, they were up in June, but that was down from May's 2.9 percent gain. And it seems like uh, inventory gains have begun to slow down a little bit. Well, so uh, yeah, yeah. Please follow up on kind of the yeah. you know discussion on the crises and maybe uh, where housing looks like yeah the only precedent I, I should mention that I think is important is Japan you know when Japan blew up uh, and you had a very 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 slow growth no inflation economy and I think uh, that I said when I was out in Bozeman we're, we're kind of turning Japanese a little bit uh, because we are in this very very mature world and it's a 
big old experiment with central bank intervention uh, and global competitive devaluation that's kind of unprecedented. So we'll see. Japan is a very unique situation with massive internal savings and wealth and so forth. They're internally funded debt. So it is different. But I do think that from a demographic and growth point of view, what you're going to see now in U.S. and Europe is going to look like that post-Japanese uh, period. On housing, um, look, the only thing that matters on housing is not the total amount of supply, but the ratio, the absorption rate. How, how, how quickly is supply being taken up? And, you know, it's a regional business again. It's not this U.S. total phenomena. Uh, and the overall just isn't that strong. I mean, if you told me we were going to go from three and a half to two on the 10-year and whatever that, whatever that means for the 30-year, they're obviously highly, highly correlated, I would have said, and, and that we weren't going to be in a recession, but we were going to be kind of stumbling along at one and a half, two percent growth, which is kind of what we're looking at now for Q2. I would have said, yeah, I, I would think housing would be stronger. You look at the XHB index; it's kind of worked to the top of its range, but it's not super exciting. Uh, and as I said, you look at things like durables, housing, light trucks really not that strong. Uh, so you've had all the stimulus in the world that you can get in the 10-year, and you're not getting that much of a reaction from it. You know, one thing that economists have a hard time doing is understanding behavioral change. And it does seem like the millennial generation, the people who are now sort of in their 30s, uh, the echo boomers, if you will, that ought to be buying um, these houses, you know, the, the million-dollar houses, the, the 6,000-square-foot houses that are out there, they don't want it. They don't want the property tax obligation. They don't want uh, the big house. The Wall Street Journal had a great piece on this phenomenon a month ago, and I see it in my community outside of New York, and all the communities uh, outside of New York are the same way. Young people don't want to incur the risk of buying as big a house as they can because unlike their parents, they don't believe it's an appreciating asset. They see it for what it is, which is a high cost to carry asset. Uh, so even with rates incredibly low, uh, I think the follow-through and the stimulus that you're getting from the housing market is pretty unimpressive. Yeah, it seems like, especially when we talk about the millennial generation, then there's been a flight to the cities. So, you know, contrary to what it was in the 50s and 60s where, you know, suburbs exploded and it's kind of the leave it to the beaver generation. I mean, I think we're seeing a lot – a lot more renters and uh, people moving back to the cities and kind of revitalizing those areas. Um, and, you know, that's, yeah. I think a big part of that has to be, you know, college debt, maybe stagnant wages. And also, I mean, I'm sure lifestyle choices are a big, big part of that as well. Yeah. People are having fewer kids or having fewer kids later. And I guess uh, one thing is, it's it's kind of an so we look at banks and you know this June um, our banks pass you know a lot of our stress tests with flying colors um, you know whether that be J P Morgan you know Bank of America um, Goldman um, you know there's purchased you know billions back of their own stock in 2018 um, but you know there's also some raised distributions of dividends as well. Uh, our banks seem to be in a very competitive situation relative to a lot of the major banks in, in Europe and Asia right now. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, the one big difference is at least we've got some interest rates. At least we've got some net interest margins. Whereas the European banks, uh, it's very hard to make money in 
a, you know, a zero interest rate, no interest rate world. Uh, and then they have, they, they also have the tougher regulations, uh, the European banks, in terms of how much money they can make uh, at the retail level. It's, they're almost like utilities, but like utilities in the United States, the regulators at least give them an ROI that they can hit. It's like the banks are on their way to being utilities, but the governments haven't yet figured out, oh, okay, but you do at least need to have a return on investment that is attractive. So I think the European banks have a disadvantage. They've certainly all lost a tremendous amount of market share in an ever-increasingly difficult and lower-margin capital markets businesses and fixed income and equities. So the big three in the U.S., uh, Goldman Morgan, J.P. Morgan, and BAML to a lesser degree, have just taken a ton of share uh, in the capital markets where the other guys really can't compete. Uh, so you've gotten to have a tougher, smaller world where a few guys at the top uh, can be competitive and can maybe make a double-digit return on investment. Um, but, in a, you know, the, the, the banks need more volatility. They need uh, a higher interest rate environment, at least a steeper curve. Um, and God knows when that's going to happen. You know, God knows when we're going to start to see enough real inflation in this world that you're actually going to see some yield curve come back again. Probably gets driven not by growth, but the bat in the bad way, and you have a bear steepener, and it's a credit cycle. But, you know, we'll see. But unless you're at one of those top banks right now, you're probably ceding share to them. Yeah, I mean... What's going to bring up interest rates is, I guess, anyone's guess at this point. Um, before the call, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, big policies and what might we see in this political cycle. Um, they've kicked around, you know, a $2.000 trillion infrastructure bill for quite some time now, which would obviously, if anything's going to raise interest rates, maybe that does. But in terms of, you know, what's going on right now, it seems like we're going to be kind of in a state of policy paralysis coming up to the election. Um, and I yeah. wonder if you see anything coming out in a bipartisan way or if, if, if it's kind of going to be stagnant until, until this next election season. Yeah, I think almost impossible uh, for them to get much meaningful done. Uh, you know, the House is controlled by the Democrats. Uh, and if you're looking for any kind of a drug legislation or Medicare legislation, that's almost impossible because the, 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 the left end of the Democrats aren't going to go for anything. And uh, the right, um, you're just, there's just not enough incentive and there's just too much money and disincentive for them to, uh, to try to really push anything hard. You know, you're in the last two years of, uh, of a first term president. You never get anything done really in those two years. Uh, look, the bigger issue that you're going to start seeing in the headlines is that can they get, uh, can they get a, um, can they get anything done, uh, and can they even raise the debt ceiling? We'll probably have another debt ceiling fight uh, in the House uh, and in the Senate. So, you know, really unclear to me that they can get anything done. My guess is they won't. Uh, Pelosi is not going to want to give any kind of legislative victory uh, to Trump and McConnell. Uh, we're basically in uh, we're basically in the political season now, and any hope that you had of getting something done uh, is is negligible, uh, at least until after the election and we have a new president and a new Congress. Yeah, you you brought up you know Medicare, Medicaid, just kind of the healthcare industry in general. Um, I mean, I know Joe Biden right now; he still remains a forerunner, but he's definitely kicked back on 
a lot of the ideas in terms of, you know, um, full-time Medicare for all. Uh, but at the same right. time, there has been some kind of consensus, at least when it comes to costs, which is that, you know, there have been a little bit of bipartisan efforts to lower drug prices. Uh, what happened most recently was, you know, one of the judges said that, you know, Trump's blueprint of lowering prescription drug costs, which was, I, I mean, my understanding is functionally forcing advertisers to, you know, state the costs up front on their commercials, um, you know, that was ex nade So what could have been what seems, you know, a somewhat solution to a vaccine problem was was shut down by, by the courts. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, look, you could get yeah. something that gets done uh, by fiat, you know, through HHS, but it, it doesn't seem, you know, just look. I mean, where lobbying really can hurt you is, is I do think in the healthcare area. Remember old Tommy Thompson? What was he from Wisconsin? I think he ran HHS. You know, as soon as he's out, he's a lobbyist. Uh, his son had always been a lobbyist, even when he was in Congress. I mean, you know, you get you get a job on some House subcommittee or Senate subcommittee on drug prices or Medicare oversight. The next job you have is going to be working uh, as a lobbyist for a drug company or for a for a lobbying entity that works for a drug company. I just, if if I'm cynical about the political system, it's on how ineffective we are at 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 making legislation that would actually effectively bring down final prices. Every time I see legislation, I see the sectors that are supposed to be negatively affected do better. I see the HMOs go up. I see the drug to companies go up. I see the biotechs go up. You know, we're going to have a million-dollar therapeutic this year. You know, there's been a lot of talk, but it really just kept going in one direction, and prices keep going higher. Now, you've had some disinflation in the services side, and that has had an impact on inflation, but, you know, I'm not optimistic that you're going to get a whole lot done from a legislative point of view that's, going to, that's actually going to impact the profitability of either the hospitals, the drug companies, uh, or the HMOs. Yeah, I mean, especially, you know, we saw companies, the costs were about 27% on average uh, last month, you know, throughout the board. So, I mean, maybe there's a straw that breaks the camel's back, but, uh, I mean, if we haven't seen it in the last few years, I just I just don't know what that will be. But And then, you know, let's say Biden's the next president. Uh, is he going to, you know, he's only got like two years, right? You become president, you got like two years in your first term to get anything done. Hopefully you get something done out of the gates in the first year, and that's probably going to be the best thing you get done. Well, Obama used all of his capital on Obamacare and really didn't get a whole lot done after that. Is he going to – is Biden going to come in and want to focus on health care? I'm not sure he is. Uh, so, you know, I, I just it, – it seems to me a, a long shot that you're going to get something done uh, anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, especially when we look at how contentious that was, I mean – you know, yeah. there was a shellacking after that, you know, in 2010. And, um, I mean, I don't know if Biden wants to kind of reinvent the political wheel. You probably want to focus on something that's got at least broader appeal or, you know, is less less intense than, than you know, relegating, yeah. you know, our health care issues. But, yeah. I guess one thing that has changed quite a bit since we talked last was where we stood on China and uh, trade developments. Uh, you know, Trump agreed to postpone tariffs on about $300 billion of Chinese imports. Um, and, you know, it seems like we're also receptive to allowing, you know, we're supplying some of our products to uh, Huawei. 
Um, so it seems like there's been kind of a loosening there. Um, and then, you know, she seems like he'll scale back um, or scale up on some purchases, you know, on soybeans and wheat. So I wonder if, if, if this is just going to be a slow roll of development or if we are close to what might be, uh, you know, a meaningful resolution on the world's two largest economies. Yeah, no idea. I mean, I'm surprised at the market reaction to it. Everything I look at is we're losing this negotiation. The Chinese have given up nothing. We're going to sell them soybeans, which they desperately need because they consume so much pork, and they've had a, a bad harvest, and, I, you know, you've had all the pork issues that have probably killed some of their demand for beans. But, look, we, we export a ton of beans and distiller dried grains to China, which is a corn derivative that comes – it's what you get left after you've made ethanol, uh, and it's a protein that we sell for animal feed. Uh, that stuff we're going to be selling to China. We have to sell it to China. They need it. So I don't feel like they've given up anything. Um, I think Trump is a believer in um, – in tariffs. I think he thinks it's good economic policy. I think at some point, um, who knows, uh, you know, uh, we'll be back to him threatening to put those back on. Because as far as I can tell, and tell me where I'm wrong, we've made basically zero progress. Uh, and we've made threats, and then we've backed off of those threats. And as far as I can tell, the Chinese have given up absolutely nothing. And that doesn't surprise me. They've got a hell of a lot longer game plan uh, than the term of this presidency. Uh, and I think they think they can wait it out. Yeah, I, I, I guess one thing I also think is there's kind of been an opportunity cost while we've been having these tariff issues because there's been a lot more free trade packs that have been created. Um, I forget what it's called, but I saw recently there was kind of an expansion. It was TPP-esque. You know, it involved several South but, American countries. Um, if you remember the name, I don't. I think it was Marsor or something like that, but – I mean, traditionally, that would have been an agreement we probably would have been in. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of the contention, you know, between U.S. and China has, you know, affected all the economies of the world. And, uh, you know, they've kind of had to shelve out into different bases and different, you know, special economic zones um, in order to accommodate that. Yeah, I mean, look, you're right. I mean, once somebody starts to shift their supply chain, that's expensive to do, and it's not like they're going to shift it right back. And uh, Brazil and Argentina uh, have massive uh, safrinha harvest of corn and DDGs, and, and uh, they sell a ton of soybeans. Um, so we're just going to lose long-term permanent market share, uh, in my opinion. Um, that's the way that will go. We're just going to lose a lot of that share as China decides they need to um, I think it might be the Mercosur group in South America that is a trade organization uh, between, I think, Brazil, Argentina, and Chile, and some of the other countries that will, yeah, they're just going to take that share. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely, that was the one I was referencing. Um, I mean, you know, we've got a new, got a new version of NAFTA now. I mean, um, be interesting to see if, you know, we Bush uh, Jr. created CAPTA, but, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether there's any more free trade agreements opening up there with, you know, a lot of the um, issues surrounding immigration and, um, you know, issues we're having with those governments right now. But it seems that, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the political realities have made a lot of the economic openness a little bit harder these days. It just makes business investment harder. You know, let's say you own a trucking company that, that you know, some percentage of your flow – 
comes in and out of Mexico. It's awfully hard to take on a new line of credit for two new rigs, you know, if, if that's what you're dealing with. So it just it, it hits everybody uh, at the margin uh, who's in who's in the build of, in the world of, of imports and exports, and that's everybody. So, yeah, uh, we we talked a little bit about elections um, last last episode. I mean, a lot of the stuff we actually mentioned's kind of been washed under the news cycle, whether that be Iran or whether that be Brexit. But um, you know, do we see anything um, in Europe? that would make you think that maybe the movement might be a little bit more friendly to ECB. I, I know Greece recently had elections um, or, or whether, or whether it's going to, you know, the Eurozone and a lot of the people who are quote unquote globalists, if they're still, still in trouble. Man, I, I kind of think, you know, you may end up with Boris Johnson uh, you look at the po- in, in the UK. You look at the popularity of Salvini. You look at the failure, seemingly, of Macron in, in France. Uh, Merkel looks like she may be on her last legs. I kind of think that, you know, kind of right-wing populism is on the rise. And you know, we talk about globalization and globalization in terms of just amount of trades and trading partners that happen all over the world has been growing since the end of World War II, and now it's starting to decline. Um, and a lot of that is about nativism and anti-immigration and so forth. And I don't think we have any idea what the impacts uh, are going to be of those things. They should long-term be inflationary. Uh, if you're not importing cheaper labor uh, and if you're not trading uh, with, with all trading partners who can create goods uh, in the most profitable way, uh, ultimately, that should be inflationary, um, but we'll see. I, 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 I think we'll continue to see uh, the populism, uh, the right-wing populism, become more and more effective uh, and probably a growing power in Europe. Yeah, yeah it certainly seems that way. Well, I think we've uh, kind of hit a lot of the major points. Um, if there's anything you know, you'd like to close on, um, I think we'd love to hear it. No, um, look, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm trying to ref, uh, refrain from sounding uh, too bearish. I have been, I feel like I have been bearish lately, and, and the odd thing is the economy has been slowing, uh, and we have seen really no progress uh, in, in trade negotiations. You see these threats and the pullbacks of threats, but no actual meaningful progress. You are starting to see an impact on business investment. Uh, and the, the only thing that's growing for the market is not earnings, but the multiple. Uh, and maybe the multiple should be going up as we get into a uh, less than 2% yield uh, on the, uh, in bonds. But um, ultimately, uh, and I reiterate this every time, it's, it's the credit cycle that matters. And, and you know, history doesn't change in the sense that when you put out too much easy money, it begets malinvestment, and that begets bad credit, and this cycle will be no different uh, ultimately. All right. Excellent. Thanks for your time, Tim, and uh, for all the listeners out there, uh, thanks for your time as well. We'll pick it up next week. Awesome. Thanks, Drew. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthVest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthVest. 
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthVest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthVest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.